Welcome to Next Economy Now. The goal of this podcast series is to highlight the leaders who are taking a regenerative, bioregional, equitable, democratic, racially just, and whole systems approach to creating the new economy. I'm Kevin Bayouk, a partner and worker owner at Lyft Economy. My guest today is Dan Miller. Dan Miller is the founder and CEO of Steward, a private lender providing regenerative farmers, ranchers, fishing people, and producers the capital they need to expand and sustain their enterprises. Prior to Steward, Dan co-founded a pioneering investment crowdfunding business called Fundrise. In 2010, it was the first and largest real estate crowdfunding platform in the United States. Dan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Wondering if we could start with a little of your story. What's the path that got you into the work that you're doing today? Yeah, I'm working in regenerative agriculture today, but it is a long path to get there, but something that you know aligns background and family history. My mother's family was farmers on the Chesapeake Bay, Eastern Shore, Maryland. So I grew up in Washington, D.C. She left the farm, but I always spent a lot of time out there. And so my connection to American agriculture, the collapse of ecosystems like Chesapeake Bay, the need for solutions in agriculture more aligned with ecosystems and rural economies, that's where that came from. After school, I started a real estate development company with my brother. My father was in real estate development. So you know that's what I guess you go into. And we were buying and restoring historic properties in emerging parts of the city in Washington, D.C. These were deals that traditional investment firms were not familiar with. They didn't know the neighborhoods. They were too small and quirky for traditional investment shops. So as opposed to changing the types of deals we were doing to fit traditional capital, we decided to go out to local residents to give them a chance to invest in the real estate with us. That led to the creation of Fundrise, which was the first real estate crowdfunding platform in the U.S., originally as a way for us to raise funding for our own projects, and later spun out as an independent platform to raise funding online for investing in real estate projects. It was a very long regulatory process to make that possible, but it really opened up a new avenue that Fundrise and many other companies have now used through Regulation A to raise funding online for real estate. So through that, I learned the tech and regulatory infrastructure that's needed to raise alternative capital. I had been thinking about agriculture that whole time. There was a chef that I began to know well in the DC area called Spike Jurdy. He's actually based out of Baltimore, James Beard Award winner, local sourcing pioneer, and key sources from 150 farmers from one restaurant. And as I was speaking to these farmers, none of them had access to capital. And it was just surprising that you know you see the growth of the food systems, people desire for like farm to table and farmers markets and the demand on purchasing of sustainable agricultural products. But the actual producers producing those have no access to capital. So how are you going to ever create an equitable regional food system if the actual people producing it don't have the resources they need to grow their business? So kind of applied the model we had been using at Fundrise and concept of why don't we take the individuals who are supportive of alternative food and give them the chance to provide the capital. And that set the path that is Steward. And so since 2017, I've been working on Steward. We're a platform solely focused on providing financing to regenerative farms and agricultural businesses. We mainly provide credit, so mainly loans for farmers to buy land, equipment, infrastructure, working capital, really any type of short-term, long-term debt of us structuring funding that is suitable to the farmer and then selling that through our website to participating lenders who join in those funding campaigns. What I think is really missing in agriculture is flexibility and customization. You know, the, the kind of commodity ag system is 
this is what you get. You make this many bushels, this many acres. That's all you have. Our goal with stewards to really be designed around the needs of the farmer and give them flexibility in what they need for financing. And I just love the work. So it's, it's been many years of tying together the alternative financing work I've done with family history and agriculture and real estate. And now a platform that, that I think is doing great work around broadening access to capital for regenerative farms and also bringing more people into the world of funding these types of farms. Great. Thanks, Dan. I appreciate your story. I love the thread of following things that you're interested in, whether it's from your family circumstance or then your personal passions around food and high quality nutrition, and then tracing that back to like problems. Could we double click on some of the challenges that farmers, ranchers, and other primary producers face with capital? I heard you say that there's kind of a one size fits all. So the flexibility of capital formation is one problem. Is cost of capital or another, or is it like categorical exclusion because there's no assets to be able to actually get money from traditional farm credit because they don't qualify? Or what, what are the layers of problems that producers face that you see? Yeah, I think that's a very good question because I'm living and breathing every day the regenerative ag capital market or lack, you know, lack thereof. And it took a few years of discovery around like how is agriculture funded and what's missing there. Prior, I was in commercial real estate. In commercial real estate, there's a million different types of capital, debt, equity, private funding, family office, individual, like it's just all types of capital. So you can really get anything you need. In agriculture, the market is dominated by direct government lending through the USDA or private bank programs that are just reselling loans through these government programs. So government policy defines the entire market and government policy in America, at least historically and primarily now is focused on large commodity production of a few products, exports sold or fed to cattle and feedlots. And so if you're outside of that system, there's very little capital available. So most of, I would think, the private funding market for agriculture over the past generations has just been pushed out. You know, 7,500 years ago, there would have been local credit unions and your like handshake style funder, lender. Those have been consolidated. They're gone. There's not really community banks and local lenders in that regard. And so you have these regenerative farmers who are just stuck outside of a system. They can't get the resources they need. They have growing businesses, they have demand for what they want, but they can't get the capital. So first it's that they the market's not designed for them, so they just don't qualify. Second is that they're growing using alternative methods, which is just confusing for the traditional farm underwriter. And third is they don't come with assets. You know, these aren't people inheriting large assets. These are scrappy operations that have been undercapitalized. So you really need to like understand who they are, vet their business, not just from a financial perspective, but like their capability as a farmer, their market demand, and take a gamble with them and say that, you know, we believe that they could grow their business and be successful and be more viable if they could access this type of funding. And that's why it's critical that the funders on our platform are individuals and people that care about this work, because traditional finance just isn't interested in taking risks with anyone. And in agriculture, if you don't have a traditional commodity business, there's nothing you can do. Great. Thanks, Dan. So... The problem statement is clear that the types of credit and all the facilities that might have been there kind of have eroded. And if you don't fit in the box, that capital is not available for a variety of reasons. And Steward kind of solves that problem. I'm curious about what do the terms look like? So if, if it's not a one size fits all and there's some flexibility, 
either by example or if there's any general patterns to how it's been shaping up? What is the structure of some of the actual finances happen? It's an important question to ask. So the reason why the government kind of commodity system has dominated is the cost of capital is incredibly cheap, you know, incredibly subsidized. So those loan rates are, you know, 2%, 3%, some even lower for like working capital lines. So that's created a system that's hooked on that. The second you go outside of that system, you're losing the kind of government guarantee and subsidy support, which means the cost of capital is higher. And so most of the loans we're making, we don't take a spread. We originate a loan. We raise capital through our platform for people to buy slices of those loans. And most of our loans, I would say, are 5 to 8%. So we've tried to find that balance of like what rates are reasonable to compensate people who are lending their money to farm businesses, and then what rates are achievable for farms to actually be viable. You know, double digits isn't going to work, but 1% or 2%, just people themselves aren't going to put their money into something unless they have lots of capital and aren't really worried about return. So that's where we found like a good market. Five to eight, the things that define rate are around collateral and cash flow and experience. Scrappier, earlier startup farms in early years would be at a higher rate. Somebody who owns some land or we're financing land and they've already been operating on it would be at the lower rate. The terms, you know, rate, rate is one element, but flexibility on the structure is another one. So we give most farms three to 12 month deferment period before they have to start making payments so that they can actually put the capital to work, start generating revenue and grow their business. I would say the thing that I find most important is we design the payments of the loan around the actual underlying business. And then that gives them the chance to grow their business and then make their payments versus most real estate loans. Let's say you're going to get a loan to buy a farm. You're paying an interest payment month one. How could you possibly generate revenue on a new piece of land you bought as a farmer in month one? It's just not possible. So the rigidity of the system puts farmers in situations that they, the underlying business can't support it. And by designing around the business, you can fund people because you're not focused on their historical assets. You're focused on what can they accomplish with the financing. And I think that's where the biggest value with us. We do work alongside other financial providers. We have done loans where the USDA is a first mortgage and we're a second mortgage. So it's not that we won't weave them in. If you can get money at that cost, great. But it's not really well suited for these customers. So we'll be 10% of the deal. We'll be 100% of the deal. We're just there to help make the actual uh, financing possible. That's great. And I'm curious how flexible it actually shows up for regenerative agriculture. And we could dig into what we're talking about regenerative agriculture. But one of the problems we see frequently is in regenerative agriculture, sometimes it's focused on woody stem perennials, trees, as an example, whether it's in a hedgerow to reduce irrigation use by creating a productive windbreak for also for fertility reasons, or whether it's some type of perennial polyculture orchard system where there's interplanting or some type of tree crops integrated with row crops. And the time for the, so there's the cost of labor and materials to get trees planted, but then the timing before that shows up in in terms of the revenue is in some cases years in the future before the trees become productive, especially for nut trees. 
How flexible have you seen the terms? Is most of it today something like a 12-month deferment is possible, and that's mainly around land acquisition, but for working capital for actual regenerative outcomes, is there sure. is there flexibility to structure something that has a longer? Yeah, it's a good question. You're obviously familiar with this market too, and, and every circumstance is different. And nut trees have a classic example of, you know, you need seven years until they're producing well. So the two things we do is we try to layer enterprises. So if you have nut trees, you can also grow blueberries. You can also have chickens in the rows. Like you can stack different enterprises on the same piece of land that are symbiotic and have different cash flow cycles. And that helps build underlying revenue that you're not just waiting for one thing for a long period of time. But we've had loans. We did a 15-month loan where it was all accrued because it was about cattle that was going to be finished on grass. It was on grass all the time, but USDA doesn't like <laughs> to give loads that are long enough for the cattle to be finished on grass because God forbid. So we basically took out the USDA loan and then gave them another 18 months to take the cattle out. So the benefit of our design is we're private lender. All the individuals funding the loans are private individuals and we're the only party working between the two. So we have full flexibility in how we structure it. It's really about what will the market, you know, is the market interested in? And that's where storytelling matters. If this is my business, I need a year of deferment because I'm of this reason, or I'm not going to be able to earn revenue from the cattle for at least nine months because I would sell a few in October. So we just design around the need. It depends, you know, fruit and vegetable, you know, lettuce, you can be selling in a few months, but generally I find six to nine months is like, is a point that we find most farms can be operational. But it depends on the circumstance. And that's, we have a team member who's a farmer himself. He leads agriculture due diligence. He speaks with the farmer. He vets their project. He also talks about like, well, what business line do you want to focus on as opposed to doing this? How about this or this piece of equipment? And so we really get fine-tuned around what's the improvement in the business we can see with this financing that can help to generate cash flow. But you are correct in that like long-term perennials, nut trees, you know, those are very difficult to finance if there aren't other cash flow streams because we're as forgiving as anyone. I think waiting seven years to get any payment would be very hard to get somebody comfortable. Therein lies one of the big clashes between capital formation and actual regenerative outcomes is the timing differences and that patience, how that looks in terms of an IRR expectation of capital. At one point to that, we started with credit, but we're now providing our platform and assisting with all other alternative capital structures. And so we have seen a handful of the farms working with do revenue-based financing. Great. And I think that's been a really nicely aligned structure where there's not a ticking clock as their business grows and they can pay out the revenue. So part of what we're trying to do as a company is like, what are all the different types of capital that can be woven together? There's traditional debt, but then there's also revenue-based financing and you know other programs. And how do you then deliver something that's viable to the farmer? Because yes, I agree. You want alignment in risk and return. I love it. I don't know if you can off the top of your head, because I'm sure there's lots of transactions moving through the platform, uh, point uh, listeners to a revenue-based finance. But for those listeners who aren't aware, this idea of taking some kind of royalty off the top of the gross revenue puts the timing of the return based on actual farm performance without kind of a fixed principal interest payment structure, even with deferments, which... For my lived experience, fits better with the shared risk perspective of what most agricultural endeavors need. The consequence typically is that the actual returns end up looking a lot more patient with a reduced return to investors in terms of percentage or IRR. But 
depends on a lot of things. What's the cap on the revenue-based finance? What's the actual royalty? So that balanced risk, I think, is a, a world that will fit with a lot of the what we actually see as regenerative agriculture outcomes. Is there an example or something or a story that you might share of something that's come through the platform that you're excited about? Yeah, there is one that's a great example of that. We're working with a business in Helena, Montana. That's a livestock processing business. It's led by three ranching families that have been in Montana for a very long time. They sell most of their product wholesale. And so their goal was to create a brand and a processing facility that can give them control over processing to then get more margin on their sales, but also control the end market and actually have traceability of their product all the way through the end sale. So they needed to raise financing to build a slaughter facility when the process of underwriting alone for a mobile slaughter unit and you know really interesting setup that I think we're very successful, but they needed a few hundred thousand dollars up front for some of the pre-development costs and some of the planning costs. So just any sort of facility is going to require some upfront planning and money. And they did that via revenue-based financing. So that meant that they had time to kind of use that money to get the project going. They're not ticking with an eight or 10% every year that then in five years are going to owe. And it's a high cash flow business. They're going to be processing with basically guaranteed supply from the livestock farms that are going to be co-owners in this venture. And that's where I see revenue-based financing working well. Capital that there's going to be a cash flowing business. So you're not, it's not a speculative down the road, I'll have a big user base and monetize it. It's I'm doing a service, I'm selling a product at a farm or I'm processing something and I know I'll be able to earn revenue, but I just need some capital to get there and this can phase it. That's what we're trying to figure out. The classic venture capital equity is not well-designed for most businesses in the world, particularly these kind of like solidly growing mix of asset operations. And so we found revenue-based financing to be very effective. That revenue-based financing round, it'll be about 500000 that they raise for the revenue financing, will now enable them to unlock a 3 to $4 million loan from our platform. And so you just see like that little bit of money then takes the next step, which takes the next step. And so that early kind of like pre-development risk capital has so much leverage and impact that it's so hard to raise. And that, that's what we're spending a lot of time on. Can we work with donor-advised funds to do recoverable grants for some of that pre-development costs? Like, how do you help get that planning money to then make it a viable project that can be financed and can take the next steps? So that's how we think of things very holistically of like, we would like to see this project happen. It may be outside of our traditional business to think of all the different elements, but if we can be helpful in, in them to get taking next steps, then we want to do that. So you said, how does steward get by? You said there's a loan or a financing origination fee maybe, but in terms of if rates are averaging 5 to 8% or something like that. What are returns looking like for investors if you're able to comment on it? We don't take any spread. Part of the model that we've been like, just for simplicity of people's understanding. So in terms of the actual like return, 6% loan gets paid out 6% to the funders. So the funders are earning exactly what the underlying loan is. We charge a 2 to 3% loan origination fee paid at closing of the loan. So basically only if the loan's made and that's paid out of the loan balance. Over time, we probably will charge funders, but right now we just we like the transparency. Maybe we'll have it, you know, a monthly subscription fee for people that, with different access. But right now we're just aligned in that regard that we don't make more or less depending on the rate. We're trying to create a market and balance the rate and we have nothing to go off. There is no regenerative capital market. So it's like... And that's where I find five to eight is nice. And then sometimes people will take less or more. 
and let's find all the different players who are interested in supporting and, and build something that, that can be viable. But well, we don't want to be seen as the class that kind of Wall Street where they're taking spreads and they're packaging things and they're selling them and nobody really knows what's going on. I want to, you know, direct traceability that this is a loan you're part of, you're receiving the benefit and you know exactly where the cash flows are going. Excellent. So I like the transparency, which is something we really value at the firm from the next economy perspective. The question cooking about the platform again is for many of our listeners are part deeply familiar with kind of regulation crowdfunding, reg A, or if not deeply familiar, those terms resonate as like there's some innovation that you've done here to enable quote unquote retail investors or non-accredited investors, or maybe it is for accredited investors. Can you give me a little bit of the landscape of what you had to do regulatorily, probably using your learnings from Fundrise to make Steward happen? If you could just describe the concept. Sure. I, I could talk about this for hours or I could talk about it for a minute. So most people don't under, talk about the technical infrastructure, regulatory infrastructure, but that's how all of this is possible. And you're dealing with the regulatory frameworks that were written in 1933 and 1934 that did not envision the technology and internet we have now. So they've kind of been adjusted to try to accommodate for more flexible, but they're still not there yet. So at Fundrise, what we really pioneered was how do you sell securities online, securities of in real estate, a building online directly to individuals, you know, marketed and non-accredited. And the path that we found was regulation A, which the year prior to us using it had been used once for a Broadway musical. It was basically non-existent. We had to file with SEC and state regulators at the time, since been revised to allow a path with just SEC. And then that really opened up a path of if you want to do online marketing of equity, you know, regulation A is an effective way to do it. So when I first started with Steward, I thought, let me just use a similar path. But as I learned in the regenerative ag market, equity is actually not the best fit and biggest need. Credit is debt is really what's the bigger need. Most of these farms, they don't intend to sell. They don't pay dividends. They just reinvest everything they have and they want to hold it for life. So if you're not going to have liquidity or cash flow paid out, there's really no point of being an equity investor. That's part of the discussion around revenue-based financing of are there other ways to kind of have money paid out reliably, but not be a burden on the company? And so then we started looking at different debt models and different ways to be able to sell and participate loans. And then there was a ruling in the Southern District of New York two years ago that basically decided that syndicated commercial loans are not securities. It's been an argument for a very long time. It's the Reeves test was the original kind of court case of when are note securities or not. Obviously, every loan and note can't be a security or else the regulatory framework would be so immense that any sort of loan would have to go through disclosure documents and materials. And so this gave us a framework to use of steward as lending entity that's originating loans, acting as servicer, act, act, acting as lender of record. We secure the collateral and make the loan. And then we participate pro rata pieces of that loan to our audience of users, people that have created accounts on our platform. And then that way, we're, we're basically outside of the direct security requirements. So it lets us have a broad network of new funders on our platform that subscribe to our deals and that receive them as they come through, but really broaden what's needed. And, and that's the reality of regenerative ag, like limiting to accredited through Reg D and those other types of things. It's a very limiting framework because most people supporting regenerative ag, it's a very broad-based group of people. It's people at farmers markets, people engaged in local food system. And limiting that to high net worth only defeats kind of the whole purpose and momentum of it. 
So it took us years to figure out a framework that we were comfortable with to broaden access to capital. And we found one in a, a loan framework that we've been you know, pioneering again, but that I think has a lot of application even beyond steward of how do you expand access to small business capital and loans and debt is actually generally how things get started on the step to growth. And most businesses can't raise any financing. Banks won't lend to them. And that's what we found with Steward's model of financing is that the broader issue is access to capital for small business. Our focus on regenerative agriculture is really just a subset of small business. And so without alternative funding models and credit models, it's very hard for small business to grow. So I see the model we've created around participated in syndicated loans having much broader applicability to businesses and, and expanding access to capital which is what I've, I've always been most interested in, is how do you bring more types of capital, different types of capital to businesses that need it. And just one technical detail, the relationship between the subscriber, the participant, the retail investor, the unaccredited individual, and the platform, what are they signing or what's that relationship? Because sure. I understand the lender of record and the relationship with the farmer. How does the subscriber interface with the Yeah, platform? so the with the farmer, it's typical loan agreement, promissory note, classic let loan agreements. Those are with Steward Lending LLC. And then Steward Lending LLC signs a loan participation agreement with each participant. So they're basically a participant in the loan, buying a pro rata share of each loan. The payment flows from the participant to Steward Lending in the settlement account then it's distributed to the borrower at closing. And then our tech system pulls payments from the borrower and distributes them back out to the participants. Great. Got it. Very helpful. Thanks for being on the innovative edge of trying to figure this out. And there is a broad applicability. I think from the next economy perspective, we see in terms of regenerative outcomes, not just from land stewardship and participation with land, but you mentioned small business or even back to your real estate background, the best outcomes for repair, regeneration, typically require a much lower cost of capital than the typical mandates of market rate return capital. And one thing that I'm excited about is the public at large typically is tolerant of lower returns because they actually care about the impact outcomes. They're not driven by some kind of culturally imposed mandates on market rate returns, growing that body of people who are comfortable with 1%, 2%, 3% return, I think is something that is a big opportunity of our time. Most of the climate solutions that we see in the next economy at large, that's the cost of capital that would actually make a lot of things possible. And the capital markets just won't serve it. There's trillions of dollars on the sidelines so that we care about our world. We care about people. We care about repair. But as long as it's market rate return. So I appreciate you innovating there. And on that thread, curious if you could comment on something I'm sure you're probably aware of is that when we look at regenerative agriculture, farming, ranching, fishing, we look at the populations of people, we look at land base. So much land has been stolen, appropriated through colonialism. And of course, there's the systems of racial injustice and oppression and systemic racism that have excluded and displaced people of color from land base. And I'm curious if Stuart is interfacing with trying to help address some of that, or if that's part of your vision. Curious if you could respond to that dynamic. Absolutely. It's been a big part of our work. The types of farmers we're working with inherently are alternative. I mean, small to mid-sized regenerative farmers have different philosophy and different practices. And these are the ones that have been historically cut out. And one farm we worked with that I think highlights our work well and is just a great story is 
uh, farm in Moreauville, Louisiana. And they were plaintiffs in the Pigford USDA case about discrimination in land access and capital from the USDA over generations. And so they were a plaintiff in that experience discussed at them. So they actually gave up farming for over a decade. And they were reintroduced to us by a technical assistance provider out of New Orleans who was working with them, helping trying to get them back farming and back on land. They had identified some property that an aunt of theirs owned. And we stepped in to provide financing for them to buy the property, provide the equipment and infrastructure, and ended up basically not putting all the capital in that was needed. They didn't have cash to invest and did cash to put in. The only asset they had that was kind of agricultural asset was a tractor. So we considered the tractor as their equity contribution and lent the rest. So that was an example of finding someone who's been discriminated against, who wants to get back into farming. And by being a private lender, being flexible in how we could design and structure the financing to accommodate someone who didn't have the cash they needed, but had lots of experience and had a really important story and hopefully can be an example for other farmers. So I, I think that's what we're, as we've figured of broadening our model from you know credit to also thinking about all the different types of capital. I think when you're dealing with those historic injustices, you have to bring it all to the table. You need to find charitable capital that will take 0% return as a recoverable grant or that may be gifted and weave it all together because it's not just that they haven't had access. They've been discriminated against in terms of their ability to even apply and, and have a hearing and have a, a proper diligence but they also don't have the traditional you know, 20% that needs to be put down. And so if you can give them the 80% loan, but they don't have the 20%, then there's really no purpose to your ability to give them the 80%. Part of working with these types of regenerative farmers is that they're cut out from all types of financing. And you have to be really holistic around figuring out what's out there. And we're going to be able to navigate the capital market better. And I, I like we said, like an alternative capital market of people that have their own values and that are willing to do things that are non-traditional. And if we can just create different streams and different products for you know different funders, we can then bring those and offer those to these farmers because they're farmers. They're not navigating funding options every day. They don't even know about the technical structuring when I discuss all these different options. But the goal at the end of the day is to get them the money they need so that they can be successful. Great, great story, great example, Dan. It's a problem that's obviously a challenge that's bigger than Steward, but something that Steward might have a role to play in. This brings me to this question about Steward itself, the company in the, you've done some technology for kind of this interface between participants, the lender of record and the the farmers, uh, ranchers and primary producers. You have an online platform that not only does all the payment processing and transactions, but is able to tell stories and present information to uh, potential participants and for the farmers to be able to really tell the richness of their lived experience. One other innovation that we've seen kind of creeping up into the next economy is for these platforms to structure themselves in ways that are where the benefits that could be accrued to the platform, and I know it might be early days for Steward, can actually be distributed to the community. And so we're seeing platform cooperatives and other ways to participate in these platforms. Obviously, being a certified B Corp is a pathway to demonstrate some of the values of the organization itself. Can you tell me about Steward itself, its structure and its vision or intentions going into the future? I fully agree with that framework. And we've been involved in a lot of conversations around alternative ownership frameworks, in particular Steward ownership, which obviously is apt given our company name. I self-funded the company originally for the first four years. So 
I wanted to make sure not only just to have control over the company, but also to be able to set on the path with the right type of long-term partners. We raised our first round of outside capital led by a few family offices last year, all kind of intergenerational investors, climate-focused, generally values-focused. And so that put a really nice group of board members and investors who care about our work deeply, aren't going to sacrifice you know, our values for expediency. And then from that, we raised a broader from network of accredited investors and individuals on our platform that were active users. We gave them a chance. So we're already broadening ownership in our company by having many broad investors, by not just having like one institutional investor. We're building a syndicate network, just like our own software raises financing for broad pools of people. We're doing the same with our company. And now recently, over the past few months, I've been looking into more steward ownership structures. The Perpetual Purpose Trust is one that I've been looking closely with. There's an organic produce distributor in Oregon that used the structure recently. That was a great example. We're actually financing a shared food infrastructure project where we're looking at floating the ownership through a Perpetual Purpose Trust to employees and producers. So we're financing it, but basically seeding the actual ownership to these members, which I think is perfect for food systems infrastructure because the users participate in the growth and are incentivized to make it work if they're part owners. And I, I do one day plan to do the same for stewards. So I, I'm trying to figure out the best way to do it. Um, but I think earlier is better than later. I think a lot of the challenges are you've extracted the value and then you want to exit through these structures. And then there's a huge amount of dollar figures that have to be figured out. And so we're trying to implement them on these food infrastructure projects and for Stuart itself. I mean, I'd welcome conversations with anyone who's familiar with these frameworks and the best ways to do it. But yes, I think these types of network platform businesses, the value should accrue to the networks. And that's something that did not happen in the past generation of technology companies. And something else that we're doing to broaden use of our platform is we're speaking with a few like-minded regenerative finance firms about using our software to broaden who they're raising from. And so positioning us not just as a funder, but an infrastructure that people can utilize to expand their networks of funders. And it kind of goes to the building a decentralized capital market where you have direct relationships that are broad, but specialized to the need. So, you know, the first step in that direction is more democratic use of what I think is a very powerful fundraising tool to still. I think that response kind of also leads into partially maybe address part of my next question, but I'll ask it a different way is what would success look like 10, 20 years from now, Stuart has totally fulfilled as far as you could tell right now, your dream vision for its potential role in the world. What's happened? What does success look like? Yeah, I do view this long-term. I started the company when I was 30. I love this work and I plan to take stick with it for a long time. I think the first success for us would be actually creating a capital market and regenerative agriculture where people and regenerative farmers have access to funding, have places to go to get funding reliably, like can function like normal enterprises where there's resources for them available, alongside proving out the ecological and economic viability of regenerative agriculture. It has to work in terms of economics and the people paying for the food at a price that can cover labor costs and make it worth it for the farmers and the owners, but also has to broaden access to that type of food. And so I, I think a lot of regenerative agriculture today is is not yet proven its viability. We're still in that that early phase of, you know, can these farms thrive? Obviously there's ecological benefits, but how do you make them work? And I think a lot of my work is well, how can I weave together all of these disparate elements and package them and prepare them so that they can help 
these farms grow and not just access to financing, but we're now also supporting farms with financial reporting and bookkeeping. Uh, we helped a few of them with direct consumer websites and direct sales. So what types of services, what type of capital, like what does the market need to be like for these businesses to thrive? And then if you can prove that these businesses can be successful and there's access to resources, then there will be more of them. You know, then there will be the millions more that you need and you will provide the avenue. But I think it really needs to be proven that that it's a viable model. And then what is that balance that people are willing to take, you know, in the trade-off? If, if it needs certain 20% a year, it's never going to work. But I think the world's realizing that, you know, 20% means you're extracting value from somewhere and we need to come down to a level of more moderate expectations on growth and cost of capital. Great. I love the ambition. So full systems transformation, but identifying that there's a lot of barriers and it's cost of capital is a piece of it, but we have so many distortions within the food and agricultural system to contend with in terms of our, you know, the relationship between production and consumption, food paradoxically being too cheap, but also inaccessible, high quality nutrition being inaccessible. And a lot of that has to do with the distortions of subsidy and regulation and legacy kind of systems. So helping farmers be, prove their viability through a variety of uh, services that Steward could provide is, is exciting to try and pick away at this enormous problem with our world and the consequences of not solving it are potentially existential. So I appreciate you putting your attention on it for the next few decades. Dan, just maybe last question, just, you know, what are some of the things that you're tracking that inspire you? What are you excited about? Obviously your own venture for sure, but what are you looking at out there that we should be aware of in terms of what's in the next economy that you're tracking? I've been most excited my work around meeting these farmers and entrepreneurs, and they're just a totally different type of person than the characteristic sense of the farmer. They're very passionate people. They're very mission-oriented. They all got into it because of something else, ecology, food access, rural development. And from the face of it, it looks bleak and farmers are aging and, you know, climate is changing rapidly. But from a grassroots level, I see like an enormous effort from, I think, I guess I qualify them as social entrepreneurs who are doing really amazing things with very few resources. And part of the goal of Stewart is how do we get them more resources and set them on the path, you know, for sustainable growth. And so I, I just feel very positive every time I'm able to visit these farms and see them and meet the networks of producers they're with and have dinners with the chefs that are supporting their food and just seeing these pieces come together. So the, the local food movement has pushed for a long time, but I think it now is, is hitting a level where it can really have a much bigger and broader impact. I see everything through the regenerative agriculture lens. It relates to health and wellness. It relates to ecology and climate. It relates to access to opportunity and rural development. So I, I view that as if you can really think about land use and resource use and production of food and make that equitable and that will apply then much more broadly in other sectors. But I, I view the regenerative economy and kind of regenerative framework more broadly. I think regenerative agriculture has shown me, you know, how it can be applied in a very specific setting and then can be applied more broadly. And it's grounded me. And even now how I think about real estate, like I, had been in real estate around traceability materials and renewable materials. And I'm excited to apply that regenerative lens more broadly. But I, I do think there still are only so many examples of regenerative economic activity. And hopefully, Stuart can be one more and part of a network of many other companies that are trying to do the same thing. 
Thank you, Dan. Thanks for bringing your energy, your attention to solving problems that matter. I appreciate you for doing that. You didn't have to. You could have done a thousand different things. Thanks for your time today on the Next Economy Now podcast. And any final words for our listeners? I'm excited to, to speak to your audience. And if any of them want to reach out to me, please happily do so. And I look forward to, to talking about alternative ownership and financing and access and building a resilient economy for the future. Thanks, Dan. Next Economy Now is a production of Lyft Economy. To listen to all of our episodes, go to lifteconomy.com slash podcast. That's L-I-F-T economy.com slash podcast. You can also sign up for our monthly newsletter at lifteconomy.com slash newsletter. Please also rate and review our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.